See, the bass is a late developing instrument. It didn't have the solo parts until maybe 40 years ago. It was always a company, and I started playing melodies. I played melodies that people recognize. That's bassist and 2014 NEA Jazz Master Richard Davis playing Summertime with 2003 NEA Jazz Master Elvin Jones. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Out to Lunch, Point of Departure, Heavy Sounds, the Barbara Streisand album, Astral Weeks, and Born to Run. What do these iconic albums have in common? They all feature Richard Davis on bass. 2014 NEA Jazzmaster Richard Davis is a much sought-after bassist who has made some 3,000 recordings, not just as a jazz musician, but across the genres of classical, pop, and rock. A professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison since 1977, Davis himself attended Chicago's Vandercook College of Music while playing at night with both classical orchestras and jazz combos. He moved to New York City in the mid-1950s, where he began a six-decades-long career as a soloist, a leader, an orchestra member, and a sideman. In this, the first of a two-part interview, we explore Richard Davis's extraordinary career in jazz. Davis was born in 1930 in a Chicago that was still a pull for African-American musicians from New Orleans and the Mississippi Delta. Blues and jazz were everywhere, and a young boy interested in music could hear it just by walking down the street. Well, I used to go around the corner to a bar called 7 or 8 Club, 47th Street, not going into the bar, but standing outside of the bar. Listening to blues artists like Memphis Minnie, Memphis Slim, Muddy Waters, all those great artists. And it was uh, quite a treat. 47th Street is like a main thoroughfare. And you walk on 47th Street, a 708 Club, never forget the address, and all these great artists in there singing. Did you know then that you wanted music to be your life, or how did you discover a musical life for yourself? See, in those days, you would go to the neighborhood theater and see live musicians perform on stage. And this theater was only four blocks from my house. And you could sit in there all day long. Movie, two hours, stage show, and movie, stage show, from about 11 in the morning to 11 at night. And I was always impressed with just watching these guys. And the bass player, the lights from the stage or from backstage or somewhere, would reflect on that nicely polished wooden base and give off a reflection of light. And then those days, the bass player, when he ended solo, used to turn the bass around like this, slap it and turn around. And I said, man, that's, what is that? That's good, you know? And the thing I liked about that is that the bass was always in the background. And I was a shy kid, so I thought maybe I'd like to be in the background. 
Okay, so you like the bass. When did you start playing the bass? When I was 15. See, my cousin, June, beautiful person, she'd always say something about playing the bass. And she kept talking about the bass, and I kept listening to the bass, and she said, why don't you play it? I said, why don't you play it? And she said something that hurts me today. Women are not supposed to play the bass. She would have been a great bass player because she was a great artist. June, I just love June. You went to DuSable High School? DuSable. DuSable. High School. Depends on where you're from, though. DuSable, DuSable. You had a teacher there who had a profound influence on you. Tell me about him. Walter Diet. how much time do you have? Cause <laughs> as much time as you want to give me. <laughs> really? I could take that forever. Walter Diet was a monumental figure in Chicago and Illinois and in the country and in the world. He was such a hard disciplinarian that everybody who had something to do with him learned well what to do and how to do it. I was a very shy kid in high school, but I got the nerve to go up to his office to say, I want to study the bass. And so he just looked at me with that slow way of talking, and he said, you know, we're having summer school program for the first time this year. You want to start then? I said, yeah. So there I was with Walter Dine in the summer program, playing the bass. And when it became the fall semester, he said, you know too much to be in a beginner's band. You don't know enough to be in a concert band. So what I'm going to do is put you in a, what you call a study hall. I had a whole bedroom to myself to practice. And in the second period, you'd be observing the concert band. So there I was as a misfit, but not enough and too much. And he said, now, if you figure that you can play those parts you're looking at, play them. Play when you think you can play. i never forget the piece, Bolero Baravel. Forever that rhythm was going on. I could not find that one note. And it was almost like the first note I learned. But I was nervous. I never played with an ensemble before. And it had all these repeat marks, those signals, the capos, lapos, mafos, and all those terms. I didn't know what they meant, but I was interested. And I would tell Walter Dad, I said, look, I see something on the board that I don't recognize. I said, what is that? He said, that's trouble clef. I was only used to bass clef. And I said, am I supposed to know what those notes sound like? Am I supposed to be able to discern where they fit? He said, yes. He said, you're talking about harmony. Harmony? What's that? <laughs> Asked him so many questions. He said, Richard, come by my house next Saturday. I don't have time for that in the classroom. Well, I went to his house every Saturday for three years. He also encouraged you to play the bass as a jazz player as well as a classical player. Most certainly did. He encouraged me to play the bass with any kind of music in mind, learn it all. So I was studying all this classical stuff, and I was playing all this jazz stuff. And sure enough, in 1977, the university called me to teach here because I could do both. And the good players will say, 
Don't specialize and focus on one music. Do it all. Duke Ellington says only two types, good and bad. <laughs> good and the other kind. <laughs> that what he said? <laughs> Thank you, Joe. That's okay. <laughs> this might seem like a weird question, but the bass is such a big instrument, and there's a way you're almost hugging it when you're playing. What does it feel like physically when you're playing that? Well, <laughs> are we on tape? <laughs> it feels good. It feels good because you have something that is shaped like a woman, and you have something that sounds like a woman in certain registers. And with the passion that you're trying to get out of the instrument, you're really making love to the instrument. And the instrument responds by accepting the sound you're producing, and in a sense, it's making love to you. like to go along with the fact that I want it to be good. I want it to be in love with something. There was a movie done on the Passion guitar. Had about 60 guitar players answering the questions you just asked me. And they all had love stories. All had love stories. How did you begin to play with Sun Ra? Oh, Sun Ra! <laughs> well, Sun Ra was at least 15 years older than the guys I was hanging out with. And he had this wisdom about him that you could just see it just pulling out of his veins. And he would say things that we had never heard before. And so I started working with uh, Sun Ra in burlesque houses in Calumet City, outside of Chicago. That was burlesque town. I was going to Roosevelt College I'd work till about 4 o'clock in the morning, and 8 o'clock in the morning I was in school. And he'd say things like, uh, you see the guy over there who's drunk? Some guy laying out on the bench or a booth, I mean, really drunk. He said, I'm going to sober him up. How's he going to do that? He started playing, more out, more out, and the guy stood up at attention almost, <laughs> saluting, <laughs> within five minutes. So I started playing this band. He was telling me, if I didn't know the song, he said, you should know that song. That song is 50 years old. You got to know that song. And then I went to Paris with him. Had a great time with him there. I mean, Sun Ra was like, uh, I can't say enough about him either. Still in Chicago, still quite young. You also started playing with Ahmad Jamal. Oh, yeah. My first big-time gig. <laughs> I worked with him for two years, I think it was. And we worked in Chicago clubs. Ahmed taught me a lot, too. We rehearsed in my house, and he knew all the songs, and he had a way of playing that was just unbelievable. Matter of fact, Miles Davis used that in his performance, the way Ahmed used to play. He was very mature and very, very talented. Two years with him was like a, another library of music. 
And then you moved to New York, but you were nervous about leaving Chicago and moving to New York, which surprised me. What was the draw to New York and what was holding you back? I'm glad I had that experience because I can tell my students, don't be nervous about going to the big time. It's there waiting for you. Just be prepared. So I exchanged jobs with a guy named Johnny Pate. He was working with Don Shirley. I was working with Amr Jamal. And he says, Don wants a bass player to go to New York. I said, okay. So he said, you go around his house and play for him. So Johnny Pate took the job with Amr Jamal, and I took his job. Then after I started thinking, I said, New York, God, I want to go to New York. All those great musicians there and bass players. So I called Johnny and said, I want my job back, man, with Amr. And you stay with Don Shirley. He said, Richard, get the hell out of Chicago and go to New York where you belong. I'll never forget that. I kiss his feet today because he said that. We're still tight. So I had to go. I didn't have a job except New York. And I went to New York. What year was this? 1954. I was 24 years of age. What was New York like then? For me? Yeah, for you. Scary. It was scary because, and I, I was reading all these jazz magazines about all these guys. And there I am. I could see the vision of some bass player asking me, where you going with that bass? If I'm carrying a bass around, where you going? Who are you? That's what I thought. Little did I know that these bass players just hugged me, made me feel confident, took me out to eat, taught me where to go, these places, that place. But I literally stayed in my hotel room for two days. Where did you live? 52nd and Broadway, right across the street from Birdland. <laughs> And I would come out and eat at this restaurant and go back up to my little hole. But I was practicing all the time in my room. And people would knock on my door wondering who's this playing the bass. And you started working with Sarah Vaughn. Mm. What did you say? You went to the University of Sarah Vaughn. That's what I mean. The University of Sarah Vaughn is the best way I can describe it. That that was a learning experience in music that I had never conceived before, because she was so musical. She played the piano, and with her was one of the world's finest piano players, Jimmy Jones, who had harmonies that they haven't discerned what they were yet, modern harmonies. And Roy Haynes on the drums. I can't forget how two hearts met breathlessly Close me inside. So I read about these guys when I was living in Chicago. Here I am on the same stage with Roy Haynes. Did it take you a little while to be able to jump in there and play, or did you feel comfortable to do that from the beginning? How did that work? Wow, those are good questions. I was just going to say, I felt very nervous. I felt shy. I'm playing with all these greats who've been around for years. I didn't realize that I was probably chosen because Roy Haynes used to see me play in Chicago when he'd come there, and he finally recommended me. And so I knew I wasn't giving my all, and you know, I was just you know tiptoeing through the tulips. 
And all of a sudden, I, I went in and I said, I'm going to play. That's why they hired me. And I started bearing down in, and I could see right away. He started looking around. <laughs> That's what we heard him play. Now he's doing it. You were with her for five years. At least. And we went all over the States, went all over Europe, all these places, man. I went everywhere with her, and everywhere was a sensation. But you decided after about five years or so that it was time to leave. Was that a difficult decision to leave? Okay, well, to leave Saravan, you're leaving a gold mine, and you have to go right back down in the pit to see if you can establish another gold mine. <laughs> Never thought to say it like that before. But that's how I felt that I was leaving a gold mine, and where am I going to go from here? But I knew it was time for me to leave because I was hearing other things in my head, and I wanted to find a place to fit in. Those sounds. It's all about sound. And I said, what am I going to do with this? Well, I told them that I have to go to New York now and stay in New York to see what's happening. And what happened next? What happened next? Well, going back on the subway, guy walks up to me. I thought it was on there, Coleman. And he said, Richard Davis. I said, yeah. He said, my name is Eric Dolphy. He said, are you working this weekend? I said, no. I said, now you are. And that was exactly where I heard those sounds fit in with what he was playing. Did you go to the five spot with him? Yeah, it was the five spot. That's what it was, the five spot. And I said, man, it was Booker Little, Eddie Blackwell, Cedar Walton. And I said, man, this is it. And we were playing and playing and playing, and the music was so free. I remember the day where Eric and I got married. I was playing, and all of a sudden I heard him do things, and I started doing something similar to what he was doing and matching it. the best of friends. He was always encouraging. Now, you were determined that the bass would be considered a complete instrument, that you were going to give that instrument a melodic line. Was that something that you were doing before you met Eric, or was he instrumental in helping you accomplish that? I'll go back and tell you how my interest in the bass being a melodic interest when I told my high school homeroom teacher that I was going to leave the ROTC and join the band, and I never forgot walking around from all around the other side of the room, and he stood up to me and said, boom, 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 boom. And I looked at him. I said, I'm going to show you one day. From that day on, I was playing melodies, melodies. See, the bass is a late-developing instrument. It didn't have the solo parts until maybe 40 years ago. It was always a company. And I started playing melodies. I played melodies that people recognize. Well, your playing is distinguished by many things. Among the things that distinguish your playing is your bowing. Well, bowing the bass gives a chance for a melody to be heard in another 
way. A guy who encouraged me to use the bow more was Spike Lee's dad, Bill Lee. He said, Richard, you have a golden arm. People should hear it more. And Eric Dalton said the same thing. So then I started playing these nice melodic lines, songs, whatever. I have one CD with them playing a bowl for the whole CD, except for the accompaniment bass part. I love the sound of the bowl. I want to talk about one specific CD or album, I should say, that you and Eric made together out to lunch, which oh, you did man. at Blue Note. Blue Note is a legendary label, and Out to Lunch is considered one of its absolute best. People always ask me about that album. I mean, young people, like 20-year-old students. Do you remember Something Sweet, Something Tender? Yeah, I remember that, too. Was that the one with... Uh... You did this beautiful duet with Eric on that? Is that it? <laughs> Sweet something tender with Eric Dorfey was a chance for me to use the bow as he had directed. He's using the thing he's playing the bass clarinet on that, and I was playing a bowed bass. They have similar range in a sense of sound, you know. I just thought that was just a, a sweet thing to do, and he encouraged me to do the bow more. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between performing and recording? Performing and recording, is there any difference? Both of them have to do with the same thing, immediate improvisation. On recording, you get a chance to edit, go back and do another take. On performance, that's it. You perform me on a minute, it's over the next minute, and you don't do takes because you're in a club where you expect to play different songs. You want to play different songs. Audience influences you, puts you in disarray. And in uh, recordings, you set up an ideal situation where you can record comfortably. The fervor and feeling in the audience is not there because nobody's present. So you don't get this uh, to and fro response to what you're playing. And you can make a lot of takes, and out of maybe 10, 11 takes, you only have one that you want to use. And that can come through, say you got one in the bank, a tape you all like, then you say, let's play another one just for the kicks. And that's usually one they like. <laughs> you recorded some dozen albums as a leader. And I think the first was Heavy Sounds with Elvin Jones. Oh my goodness gracious. Yeah. 
When Elvin first came to New York, I went to hear him play, and they were playing a ballad. I'd never heard a drummer play a ballad like that before. I was Elvin Jones. And there is an amazing version of Summertime that you do on that. Summertime. You want me to say how that got... I sure do. <laughs> you knew that was coming. Bob something promoted that album. He was with Impulse Records. Teal? Bob Teal. Of course. Thanks. And uh, he called and said, Rich, I want to see an album uh, and uh, guitar player, Pat something, to come into the studio tomorrow and record it. We said, okay. So we went to the studio and me and Elvin sitting up there and Pat didn't show up. And so we looked at each other and Bob Thiel said, well, why don't you guys start playing? And I always imagined me playing summertime with harps and flutes and clarinets and strings, you know, to make it a kind of symphonic kind of a thing. And there I was with the drummer and I started playing the melody and Elvin started took the mallets and started going around on the different drums, making sounds. for 15 minutes. Then Bob said, okay, that's a take. I said, sure is a take. We never do it the same way again. <laughs> Frank Foster's song, Simone. Oh, man. Talk a little bit about Simone. I played this song a million times with Frank Foster, who was a composer. And it was a nice place, a piece of me to bow, the melody. And so I'm playing with Frank Frost all the time on that piece. And then one day I said, why don't I just play the melody one of these days? And that's when I recorded the melody. Frank said, this is uh, something I owe to you because the melody you wrote was so beautiful. And even today, if I'm to work up a concert, Simone would be in the mix. You were in a band for a while that Thad Jones and who, 
Mel Lewis. I was in the band of Thad Jones, Mel Lewis, for about um, five, six years. When Thad wanted to get a big band, he hired me as the bass player. Never heard a band like that before. Never heard harmonies like that before. And that's what he did. He raised the level of harmony in big bands during that time. I went to Russia with Thad Jones. Max Gordon went with you? Yeah, Max Gordon was there. Because <laughs> he was descended from Russians. It was a time for him to go over there. And he chose a good time to go over there with the band that was going there. Yeah, Max Gordon, God, what a man. Max wore on you. You just loved him because of his attitude, because of his laid-back feeling, you know? And so he followed me once to my compartment on the train, and uh, he came out the next day and told the guys that Richard sleeps on the floor, and he has his bass in the bed. <laughs> Those compartments are small, you know. He's right. I was on the floor, and the bass was in the bed. That was 2014 NEA Jazzmaster Richard Davis in the first of a two-part interview. The Max Gordon he was referring to was the owner of the legendary jazz club, The Village Vanguard. Next week, Richard talks about being conducted by Leonard Bernstein, recording Astro Weeks with Van Morrison, and Born to Run with Bruce Springsteen, and his years of teaching and attention to multiculturalism at the University of Wisconsin. Richard Davis and the other 2014 Jazz Masters will be honored with a concert and ceremony on January 13th at Jazz at Lincoln Center in New York City. The NEA is webcasting the event live. Go to arts.gov for details. You've been listening to Artworks, produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from Summertime, composed by George Gershwin, and performed by Elvin Jones and Richard Davis from the album Heavy Sounds, used courtesy of Universal Music. Excerpt from Tenderly, music by Walter Gross, lyrics by Jack Lawrence, performed live by Sarah Vaughn with Richard Davis. Excerpt from Something Tender, Something Sweet, and Out to Lunch, composed by Eric Dolphy, performed by Eric Dolphy and Richard Davis from the album Out to Lunch use courtesy of Universal Music. Excerpts from Simone, composed by Frank Foster, performed by Richard Davis from the album The Bassist, use courtesy of Palmetto Records. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. To find out how Artworks in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.